Hi, I'm Grant Wall, and welcome to the Planet Football Podcast, where I go in-depth with the most intriguing people in the world of soccer. I'm on vacation right now, but we are releasing new weekly interview episodes on Thursdays while I'm gone. In this episode, I'm joined by John Halloran of American Soccer Now and The Equalizer for a discussion on the U.S. women's national team coming out of the Tournament of Nations and heading into friendlies against Chile, October's World Cup qualifying tournament, and next summer's World Cup. Our conversation was recorded on August 10th. Just a quick reminder, it's a huge help if you subscribe to, rate, and review the podcast. It helps people find us. Onward! Our guest today is John Halloran. He does terrific work covering U.S. soccer and the NWSL for American Soccer Now and The Equalizer. You can find him on Twitter at John D. Halloran. John, thanks for joining me. Yeah, no problem. So, John, I want to focus our conversation today on the U.S. women's national team coming out of the Tournament of Nations, which they won, and heading into two friendlies against World Cup debutante Chile and then October's World Cup qualifying tournament. You had a really good roundup of where the women's national team is less than a year from the World Cup at yanksarecoming.com. And just to start, I was wanted to get your sense of, of coming out of the Tournament of Nations in general terms. Where do you see this U.S. women's national team? Honestly, I don't think things could be much better right now. Um, they haven't lost in over a year. They just uh, played, you know, three of the best teams in the world and, and decisively won two of those matches. They won the She Believes Cup in March. And uh, I think if you're head coach Jill Ellis, you have to be extremely happy with where things are right now. So in terms of where Ellis is in formation, she's had sort of an evolution since uh, since winning the Women's World Cup in 2015, even since going out in the quarterfinals to Sweden in the Olympic tournament in 2016. Can you go into some detail about that tactical evolution and how she's approaching the team? Yeah, so after the, uh, the loss to Sweden in 2016 in the Olympics, that fall, she initially went into um, a couple of different variations of a three-back and she was trying to get more players forward into the attack because she felt like in that match against Sweden, and I think you've seen that against some other teams too when the U.S. has played, that when teams bunker in, the U.S. has had a hard time unlocking them. Um, the three-back looked good in the fall of 2016, but then when they put it in against some better competition in the 2017 She Believes Cup, uh, the wheels kind of fell off the bus. Um, they, they did not play well. And then after that, there was a very short, um, going back to a four, four, two. And it really kind of looked like if, if, uh, if people are familiar with what Bob Bradley's U S men's team looked like when they played that empty bucket four, four, two, he was doing something similar to that through April and June of 2017. Um, where things really changed was last year. Uh, in San Diego in late July, she brought out a 4-3-3 against Brazil. Uh, the team won that game, and then uh, they haven't lost um, since switching to that 4-3-3. So for a little bit over a year, they've now been in a 4-3-3, primarily using Julie Ertz, uh, who, again, if fans haven't kind of paid attention since 2015, is no longer playing center back. She's playing the number six position. And with her as, as the linchpin of that midfield, things have really 
opened up on the offensive end and um, the U.S. really against some top competition uh, is is basically scoring at will. And really has been doing that without their full complement of outside backs. Yeah, Kelly O'Hara uh, was not in this last camp. And um, over the last eight games, Crystal Dunn has actually been starting at left back. Uh, and Casey Short was out for, for quite a while as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, one thing I find fascinating is, and I was covering the team at the 2016 Olympics, and obviously Megan Rapino was somewhat of a, a controversial inclusion just because she clearly wasn't all the way back from a knee injury at that point. But at that point in time, even looking at her age, I would have been surprised that once she even got healthy, that she would be where she is today, two years later with the women's national team, where she seems like she's as influential as she has ever been. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And I totally agree with what you said that, you know, not only with the injury, but with the age, um, I think it is a bit surprising. I think the one thing that helps her is that she's such a technical player. So her game has never been largely based on athleticism. And I don't think that, that she's declined in that regard, but her ability to deceive defenders, to go 1v1, um, to put in really quality service uh, is certainly still there. And I, I would agree. I think she's probably playing the best that, that we've ever seen her play. Another player in good form, Alex Morgan, for a while now uh, for the U.S. Uh, playing as a kind of a lone center forward in a, in a front three, that's different than maybe when she started her career with the national team where she was often uh, it was often a 4-4-2. She usually had a, a center forward alongside her. What is Morgan doing in this formation so well at this point? Well, I think what you've really seen over the past two years is Morgan develop um, a wider variety to her game. You know, as as you mentioned, when she was a younger player, she was clearly the get in behind the defense option. Um, You know, she would try to beat teams with her pace and she still has that. But what I've really seen over the past couple of years is how improved her holdup play is. Um, She plays very well with back to pressure. She can be a target forward. She can win balls in the air. Her passing um, has gotten better over the past couple of years as well, where she can come back, win the ball, and then find Megan Rapino or Mallory Pugh or Tobin Heath in those wide spaces. Um, and then the last part is that her finishing has gotten back to where it was, I think, in, in 2012, 2013, before she had gone through those ankle injuries, which had really kind of hurt her form in the 2015 uh, World Cup and the 2016 Olympics. You mentioned Mallory Pugh. She's been injured, was not part of the Tournament of Nations. Do you think, if healthy, she's a starter? Guaranteed? Definitely not guaranteed. Yeah. You know, the, the thing is, you have Tobin Heath there. Yeah. Uh, who is finally healthy. And, um, you know, for people who, who paid close attention to the tournament, she had some absolutely beautiful moments she had um a great moment out on the wing against japan in kansas city she played fantastic at the game in in bridgeview illinois um she is back and um i think you know again ellis has has a a great job and a terrible job in that she has some of the most talented players in the world but she's gonna have to pick out you know on any given day who goes into the lineup 
it does give them the advantage of, of having that ability to rotate a little bit too. If you know, if you go to a World Cup final and you're playing seven games, you need to be able to dig into your bench too. And Carly Lloyd at this point, you think is is going to be a reserve player. You think she'll be at the World Cup, but she's basically at, at this point uh, a reserve forward. Yeah, you know, um, I know everybody's used to watching her in the midfield. Lately, she's been coming on um, late in games as a forward, and I think there's just so much competition right now at that center midfield position. When you look at Ertz and Lindsey Horan and Sam Mewis and Morgan Bryan and Rose Lavelle, uh, McCall Zerboni, there's just so many talented players in there. And the one thing I, I don't think the U.S. has right now is a backup for Morgan. If Morgan gets hurt or Morgan needs to be rotated or taken out of a game early, um, they don't have a player who can match both her technical quality and her physical profile. And I think Lloyd is probably the closest uh, that Ellis has available that can do that role. So if everyone were healthy, who do you think would be Ellis's starting front three? I think it's probably Morgan, Pino, and Heath. Okay. Interesting. And, and for, for Heath, I mean, obviously she had a terrific tournament, you know, really dogged by injuries over the last couple years, it seems like. So it's really cool to see her back uh, playing at this level again. In terms of the midfield, how do you see the mix there? If, if I were picking a starting lineup um, or, or even what I would project Ellis to be doing is, is keeping Ertz at that six and probably starting Haran and Mewis. Um, Mewis did not play a lot in this last tournament. She's been dealing with a nagging knee injury, um, both in the NWSL season and, and obviously with the U.S. Um, the one fun thing uh, I think that came out of the game in Bridgeview was watching Rose Lavelle mm -hmm. uh, for the first time in, in a little over a year playing at top form. Uh, she was pretty exciting to see, and I think she could really add something to the U.S. team um, should they need a little bit more of an offensive punch. Now, one thing that we did see during Tournament of Nations was the U.S. struggling a bit getting countered uh, by opposing teams. Uh, how do you think Ellis will try and, and deal with that, especially as we move toward the World Cup? I think that is going to be the toughest question because I'm not sure. Um, you know, you, you have Becky Sauerbrunn who when she's put in a 1v1 position on the counter, does tend to struggle for pace. Um, they're, right now they're asking Crystal Dunn on that left side to bomb forward, so there is certainly the, the potential that she gets caught upfield. Um, Tierna Davidson is a player who was excellent coming into the team over the winter and the spring. She struggled a little bit since then. Um, Ellis attributed a little bit of that to the fact that she has – been away from competitive matches she's she's um still in college so she's not getting professional games outside of u.s camps like the rest of the squad so you know maybe those mistakes on, on davidson's part she had an own goal against brazil maybe that cleans up a little bit uh maybe they ask julie Ertz to sit a little bit deeper or just hold her runs a bit more to kind of offer some protection to that back line um i do think if kelly o'hara uh gets gets fit again that she can help because she has good recovery speed so she can help on um, on that outside and then the last part of this is of course Alyssa Nayer who um, on occasion over the past year has has made some mistakes and and uh, people have been critical that she's been a little slow off her line in some of these instances where they are getting countered 
She doesn't uh, tend to cut off the angle maybe as well as she should. So there's a lot of little things that, that they have to fix. And, um, you know, a lot of people forget that in 2015, the U.S. offense was not playing well in the World Cup. And it really was the defense that kept things together um, until pretty deep in that tournament. So that is something that, that Ellis does need to look at between now and next summer. How big are the goalkeeper concerns? You know, I, if I had to guess, I, I would think that the strategy at this point is to have somebody in there who doesn't cost you the game. Mm-hmm. I don't think we're in a situation with a player like Hope Solo who can win you the game um, in the way that she could. Um, Nair has had those type of performances at the club level for people who watched her when she was with Boston, there were times, you know, where she stood on her head. She had a performance with Chicago this year, uh, against North Carolina where she, she played extremely well. I don't think we've seen that at the international level. So I think she's capable of it. Um, but I also don't think there's going to be a switch between now and next summer. You know, we've seen now for, um, almost two years that Ellis has stuck with Nair even through some mistakes, uh, even through some high-profile mistakes. I think she's trying to instill confidence in Nair. She's trying to get some stability with that back line and goalkeeper combination. Um, so I really don't think there's going to be a change. I think Alyssa Nair is going to be the starting goalkeeper for the U.S. in France next summer. So toward the end of the Men's World Cup, Jill Ellis came over to Moscow and, and did some interviews with folks, and we had a kind of a roundtable with writers one day and asked her straight up a few different questions, but all part of that was, are there any players who might emerge over the next 10 months uh, and have a shot at making the World Cup roster, provided you qualify? Um, and she didn't mention too many names, but one that she did mention, which I found very intriguing, was Sophia Smith right. uh, as someone who is still very young. Obviously we're recording this on August 10th because I'm headed out on vacation here. Um, And she's playing right now in the under 20 world cup and had a very good game against Paraguay. Uh, What do you think of her and even that possibility that, that Ellis would, would mention her by name? You know, I thought it was interesting too. um, And, Smith did have a very nice goal yesterday um, in that game you mentioned. You know, I have a hard time seeing her bringing a player like that to France. You could do it. You know, are you really going to get to your 23rd player on the roster in a tournament? Probably not. Um, But with them not having a pure backup for Alex Morgan, I would almost see that last spot going to a player like Amy Rodriguez or Lynn Williams. Mm -hmm. Um, somebody who has professional experience, who has some international experience, um, unless something really, really uh, big happens with Smith over the next six months. I, I just find that hard to believe that Ellis would take that type of risk heading into a World Cup and, and having an option to bring an experienced professional forward and instead um, kind of risking that on a, on a teenager. Now, one thing I reported right around the first game of Tournament of Nations uh, was something that was a year old, uh, but I had only found out very recently, which is that a year ago during Tournament of Nations, several veteran players on the women's national team went to the Federation president, who was Sunil Gulati at that time, and said, we have deep concerns about Jill Ellis. We 
don't think she communicates very well to us, sometimes not at all. Um, and we're concerned about the direction of the team since the World Cup. And if these concerns aren't addressed, we want her gone. And there's a history of the veterans on the U.S. women's team doing this. That's how Jill Ellis got the job in the first place when Tom Sermani was let go. Uh over the years, Greg Ryan, April Heinrichs all dealt with stuff like that. Uh, sometimes a change was made, as with Sermani. Sometimes it wasn't, as with Heinrichs back in 03, 04. Um, is it, it's a little weird with the timing coming out when it did and that it's not kind of a current situation because clearly Jill Ellis is still in the job. Mm-hmm. Um, but what did you make of that as just sort of news and, and, and what happened? It didn't really surprise me. Um, 2017 was a pretty rough year for the team. They they had played very poorly in the uh, She Believes Cup in the spring. And then when they opened up the Tournament of Nations last year, they lost to Australia for the first time ever. So, um, you know, players who are unhappy are going to take opportunities when a team is losing, um, you know, to do something like that. Uh, you know, it was interesting what Ellis said, uh, because she was asked that question mm-hmm. uh, this this past week. And, you know, she just said that's the life of a coach. You know, when you're making decisions, you're going to make some people happy and other people not. Um, I don't think a lot of people really fault Ellis for trying that three back in 2017. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, it was it was a worthwhile idea. I think you can fault her on the personnel she used when she tried it because it didn't seem to be the best uh, choice of, of players to, to make that system work. Um, but when you come out of a, a World Cup and Olympic cycle, you're going to see veterans who uh, are perhaps in reduced roles. They're probably not going to be very happy about that. Um, you know, and if they if they see an opportunity like that, there, there's always been that element of player power in the U.S. squad. As you mentioned, it's happened multiple times before. Um, I do think it's a little bit reduced compared to in the past, just because the team is much deeper than it used to be. And if you have players, you know, who you don't feel are good for the group, you can move them along much quicker than you used to be able to, because you do have options, which you might not see much of a drop off, if any drop off at all. And I I think the newest CBA has also reduced the number of those allocated contracts. So Mm -hmm. I think that's a trend you're going to see over the next few cycles as, um, as we they kind of, as the women's game, I think at least in the U.S. will probably move more towards a men's model, um, where players are being paid for by their clubs, and so I think you'll continue to see a reduction of that that player power. One other news story connected with the most recent camp was Jaylene Hinkle getting called in and then being cut when it went down to twenty three. Uh, it was the first time she had been called in since she refused a call up, saying that she. Uh, later saying that she didn't want to wear the pride numbers uh, in support of a a lifestyle that she doesn't support on religious grounds. Um, There's different thoughts out there about why Hinkle was called in and cut. What, what's your sense? You know, I think that's the million dollar question because I was out with, uh, with the team in Utah and I had asked, uh, Ellis why Hinkle wasn't called in for the June camp. Um, and Ellis had said that it was, that it came down to form. Um, then Hinkle gets called in a month later after a period in league play where she'd been dealing with an injury and arguably was in worse form 
than she'd been in early in the season. So um, there was some speculation, and I have to stress that that's speculation, that they did it to avoid some sort of a discrimination lawsuit. Um, I think from a pure playing point of view, Hinkle is the best left back in, in the NWSL right now. I don't think that's really even that much of a debatable point. Um, but when you bring in a player like that in, into the U.S. environment, which does have at least one out player, um, you know, and, and a coach uh, who's gay, that you're going to create or have the potential of creating some, some chemistry issues um, as well. So it doesn't really surprise me uh, that she was called in, nor does it surprise me that she was cut. Um, I think the way it was done, the way she was left off, then brought in, then let go, I think is going to leave some room for, for speculation on fans' part. Um, but that, you know, that is what it is. Yeah. So looking ahead to the October World Cup qualifying, how, I mean, this shouldn't be difficult. I, I no longer assume a, any U.S. national team is going to qualify for a World Cup. Um, but what are you looking forward to to learning from that tournament, not just about the U.S., but about the other teams in the region? Well, I think um, one thing that, that should be interesting is that in the past, CONCACAF teams have generally bunkered in. Mm-hmm. So that's going to be a really good opportunity uh, for the U.S. players to see if they can break down, you know, a bunker. Um, obviously, the Canada game is always a, a terrific rivalry between the U.S. Uh, and them. So that that could potentially be a good game. And then Mexico is improved quite a bit um, in the games that the U.S. and Mexico played in April. The U.S. won both of those games pretty handily, but they also gave up three goals over two games uh, to Mexico. So I think that is an interesting dynamic. You know, if you can add in that third team uh, into the CONCACAF mix to make it a little more competitive. And a lot of people probably forget, but in the 2011 cycle, the U.S. actually had to play a playoff game uh, against Italy after they had that hiccup. So anything is possible. It's true. I mean, the U.S. was the last team to qualify for the 2011 World Cup uh, after Mexico beat him in the qualifying tournament. In terms of like looking ahead to the World Cup itself, I'm curious to get your thoughts on Australia because that's a team where the U.S. has had a little more trouble lately with. Uh, lost to Australia last year, uh, needed a late equalizer in the Tournament of Nations, even though I thought the U.S. played pretty well in that game. Right. Um, is there's something about Australia that presents a specific matchup issue for the U.S. I just think they're good. You know, they're <laughs> um, they they started a youth movement about six seven years ago that really is starting to pay dividends now. Um, when Sermani was the coach there, Tom Sermani, he had brought in a lot of teenagers to their team, um, and they do the same in the W League. We've we've had some um, a lot of U.S. players in the last few years have gone over to the W League, and one of the things that they say when they come back is that they're playing games with 15 and 16 year olds over there. So um, those players are developing a lot of them. A lot of the Australian players now play in the U S throughout the summer in the NWSL. So I think they've also gotten better um, from the league here. Um, and then of course you have Sam Kerr who, who is possibly the best forward in the world. So of course, when you have players like that and you're vulnerable to a counterattack. Uh, I think that sets up kind of a recipe um, for a difficult game. 
John Halloran covers U.S. soccer in the NWSL for American Soccer Now and The Equalizer. You can find him on Twitter at John D. Halloran. John, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the Planet Football Podcast. I'd like to thank John Halloran as well as everyone at Cadence 13 and Sports Illustrated who supports this podcast. Please, if you like the pod, tell your friends, subscribe, like, and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help the cause if you do. And check out the 30-minute Planet Football video show hosted by me and Luis Miguel Echegaray on SITV. That's available on SI.TV, Amazon Networks, and Fubo TV. See you next time. Do you know about the Locked On Podcast Network? The number one daily sports podcast network. Locked On has a daily podcast on every NBA and NFL team, plus a growing lineup of college and MLB teams. You get a daily bite-sized podcast giving you the latest on your team from the local experts. Lakers fans, search Locked On Lakers. Cowboys fans, search Locked On Cowboys. Just search Locked On, your favorite team, on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, or tell your smart speaker to play podcast Locked On, your favorite team. Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.